Welcome to Blockstars, Ripple's podcast that features leaders in crypto and blockchain to discuss the basics of these technologies, the current landscape, and the real-world problems being solved. I'm your host, Ripple CTO David Schwartz, and I'm joined today with my colleague, Stu Alderati, General Counsel at Ripple. Great to have you on our episode, Stu. Great to be here, David. Thrilled. You know, if our listeners are anything like me, they're probably wondering what you do at Ripple. You want to give them a little uh, intro? Sure. So uh, I'm the general counsel at Ripple, which means I'm the chief legal officer. And in my role, I manage all things legal. I manage all things compliance and I manage all things government relations as well. You come from a traditional finance background. Ripple is uh, not exactly traditional finance. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your journey. Sure. So I managed my entire career on the East Coast in New York City. I've been doing this for more than more years than I care to count. Probably I will just keep it at uh, more than 30 years. The first half of my career, I was did the traditional law firm route in New York City, big law firm, work your way up from associate to partner. I was a litigator and a trial lawyer. I had two stints as a special assistant U.S. attorney appointed by the Department of Justice for two special projects for then. And then I turned uh, and went in-house, first with American Express, where I was managing counsel for quite a few years. And then I became general counsel for HSBC North America Holdings. And then right before Ripple, I was general counsel for CIT Group, which is a large bank holding company based in Manhattan. And I was sitting at my desk one day in New York City, and I got a call asking me whether I'd be interested in an opportunity at this company called Ripple in San Francisco. Uh, I didn't know much about Ripple at the time. I did research. And the more research I did, I got to tell you, I fell in love with the vision and the mission of Ripple, the business model. Uh, The leadership was incredibly impressive, both at the executive team level and at the board level. And as a lawyer, I'm a little bit of like a, a moth attracted to a flame. If you kind of say, hey, look, here's a, some really interesting, complex legal issues that need solving, uh, it's tough for me to resist it. So you put all of the, that together. I said, what the heck? Um, and I left everything I knew in New York City, kind of packed up figuratively and literally and got an apartment in San Francisco and went to work for Ripple. Uh, and I've actually been loving it uh, ever since. It's been a great ride. So I'm sure you've been thinking about how regulators need to approach digital assets and the challenges that this sort of these sort of new technological developments present for them. How do you think regulators should think about what's going on in the digital asset field? Yeah, so look, I think as the cryptocurrency and blockchain industry matures and we start seeing real use cases for blockchain and digital assets that are not only developed, but actually are starting to be adopted and commercialized. Regulation needs to mature along with the industry. So what does that mean? I think we need regulation that recognizes the potential of the technology and fosters that potential. And We need regulation that's transparent. By that, I mean, if you read it, you kind of know what the rules are. You need regulation that's principle-based, which means the regulation is not so rigid that it won't grow with the technology. You don't want the regulation itself to become obsolete. So I guess to sum it up, what I would say is you need smart regulation that recognizes and fosters the promise of innovation. So is the problem lack of regulations? Is it bad regulations? Is it conflicting regulations? Is it unclear regulations? Is it all of the above? Uh, yes, it's, it's all the above. It's all the above. It depends like which jurisdiction you're looking at. Uh, there are some jurisdictions which are kind of just outright hostile 
uh, and they'll tell you that. It's like, just don't do business here. There are certain jurisdictions that are kind of leaning in and, and kind of taking this principle-based approach. And then there are certain jurisdictions that are uh, simply not clear. It's just very difficult to really understand what the rules of the road are. Could you give us some examples of jurisdictions that you think are getting it right? Yeah, I think there are quite a few. Um, off the top of my head, I would point to the UK. I would point to Singapore. Japan jumps to mind. Switzerland jumps to mind. And uh, the UAE uh, is another jurisdiction that I think is getting it right. So what would you say is, uh, is it about those jurisdictions that makes them getting it right? What are they doing or not doing? What would you say? Well, let, let's take one. Let's take the UK, for instance. So you've got, in the UK, you've got the FCA, which is the Financial Conduct Authority. And they start with, again, a basic principle that regulation should provide clarity to the industry, but should also foster innovation. So that's the principle from which they start. And from there, uh, they create a clear taxonomy, which is just a fancy word for definition or classifications, and then they bucket digital assets into different categories. And the categories that they choose are you have something called an exchange token, and those are tokens that are decentralized, meaning they're not backed by a central authority, and they're designed to exchange value. You got utility tokens. Those are tokens that are designed to be used uh, for a specific product or service. And then you've got security tokens, which kind of are more akin to a traditional stock certificate or debt instrument that represents kind of a right or title or interest in a, uh, in a company. And those, the security tokens are the ones that are subject to the rigors of the securities laws. But then after they lay out that taxonomy, those buckets, they do a couple of things, which I think are really helpful. They say, look, even if you have a token that's not a security, it may be an exchange token, uh, it may be a utility token, and that token is not subject to the securities laws, that doesn't mean that regulatory chaos just ensues. It's not a free-for-all. They make clear that there's a bunch of other regulatory schemes that may still apply, like consumer protection laws or anti-fraud laws or anti-money laundering laws or counterterrorism financing rules or unfair competition laws. So there's a bunch of other laws that still apply, even in the absence of the securities laws. And maybe just as importantly, I think the UK recognizes that some people may buy an exchange token or they may buy a utility token, not to actually use the token, but they may buy it for speculative purposes in the hopes that they could sell it to somebody for more than they bought it. So, you know, secret of all secrets, people like to make money. But the UK says that even if you're buying an asset for speculative purposes, that doesn't mean that it's going to be subject to the securities laws. And the analogy would be somebody buying some fine wine or they're buying real estate or they're buying beanie babies or they're buying fiat currency because they, uh, they're not going to use any of those things, but they hope that uh, those things may increase in value and they can later sell it for more than they bought it. Uh, for. That doesn't make a Beanie Baby a security. Uh, it makes a Beanie Baby a Beanie Baby uh, that you may give it to your, you know, your son or daughter as a gift, or you may want to hold it and keep it in the attic, uh, thinking that the Beanie Baby market's going to increase at some time. Uh, and that's the way it should be. And if it's not, 
you know, my 90 year old dad who's been collecting baseball cards since he's an adult is probably in a, uh, you know, uh, thinking they're, they're going to rise in value. I don't think he thinks that he's dealing in securities. And I don't think the folks who are selling him the baseball cards think that they're dealing in securities. So that's the approach that the FCA has taken. And it's been a pr- pretty clear, uh, understandable and transparent approach that still protects customers, still protects the integrity of the market, but allows the industry to evolve. So I noticed conspicuously absent on your list of jurisdictions getting it right is the jurisdiction that you and I are currently both in, which is the United States, not to imply that they're getting it wrong. But um, So I know in the United States, we've got 50 states, many of which are working on their own regulations. We've got the consumer finance people who are trying to figure out what their role is. But of course, the 400-pound gorilla, or however many pounds a gorilla is, is the Securities and Exchange Commission. You want to tell people a little bit about how they've been acting in the space? Yeah. So... Let's put it in context, David. So uh, you're right. The supervision of cryptocurrency in the U.S. has thus far largely fallen to the Security and Exchange Commission, the SEC. And there's a good reason for that. You know, and I know, and, and folks who are listening know that a number of years ago in the U.S., there was this ICO craze, initial coin offerings. And those early ICOs, they raised real concerns about fraud and market manipulation. And the SEC stepped in and they said, hey, look, if you're going to raise capital from investors, you need to follow the securities laws. So the SEC, they did their job and they set down a clear marker. And what they did is, in effect, they took a machine gun to the ICO craze. And, and I think rightly so. But in so doing, what they did is they crammed this new technology into a set of rules that dates back more than 80 years. And what we ended up with, unfortunately, is regulation by enforcement, meaning we end up with a lot of examples of what the bad and what the ugly looks like, but we don't end up with any examples or any idea of what the good may look like in the U.S., In June, there was an announcement that Jay Clayton, chairman of the SEC, might leave the SEC to become the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. How likely do you think any of that is to happen? And if that change were to come about, where do you think uh, that would leave regulatory clarity prospects for the United States? You know, in terms of how likely it is, I'll leave that to others. Before I answer the second part of your question, there's really two apolitical or non-political observations I think are worthwhile making. First, despite what anyone may think of Jay Clayton's view on crypto, uh, it's important to note that Jay is a lawyer of uncompromising integrity and professional judgment. That's the first observation. The second is that the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Southern District of New York, they are legend for their independence. Uh, As a young lawyer, I had the privilege of working closely with that office. I worked for the independent overseer of the Teamsters. That overseer was appointed by the Southern District of New York to root out organized crimes, which was then like decades long hold over that union. I mean, this is like really wild stuff. It's like stuff coming out of a Martin Scorsese film. And I can tell you that the Southern District of New York cannot be compromised. So those are kind of just the two apolitical observations to make. But to sort of get to your question, like what if, if, if Jay Clayton were to leave as chair of the SEC to take on another role, whether that's U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York or something else, how would that affect uh, regulation of kind of crypto in the U.S.? Uh, what I would say is, look, I, I really hope that the path to regulatory clarity in the U.S. is not dependent on who the chair is of the SEC. Uh, As I've said before, I mean, what we need is smart regulation that fosters innovation. 
and there's several paths to get there. But I would hope that one of those paths is not contingent on who is the chair of the SEC, because if it is, I think we've really lost the thread on this one. Uh, there's a real urgency to this. The U.S. is already falling way behind when it comes to blockchain and digital assets. And we run the risk that we're just not going to be able to catch up if we don't get our regulatory house in order. And I would hope that's not dependent on who's running a particular agency to kind of get to the right answer. Well, uh, so I heard the SEC issued something called the Digital Asset Framework. So all good, right? Yeah. So that, I think that was their attempt to try to tell the industry what good would look like, but a few things on the framework which they issued last year. Number one, it's not binding, meaning it's not a regulation, it's not even formal guidance. It's it's just, you know, kind of informative. Uh, it's an informative framework to indicate how the SEC staff may think about these things. And what the framework did is they took three factors from, I think now a famous or infamous 19... 46 Supreme Court case that kind of defined what a security is. And they expanded those three factors into, you know, people count differently, but I've heard people say 30 factors. I've heard people say as many as 60 factors. And depending on your count, you're supposed to read these framework and say, okay, if I satisfy most all of the 30 factors or 60 factors, I'm not a security, but if I don't satisfy most all, maybe I am a security. So the framework Look, it's been criticized, and it's been criticized by one of the SEC's own commissioners, because guidance that can mean anything to anyone is really no guidance at all. Uh, and remember, I said earlier on, David, that regulation needs to be transparent. So I think the SEC staff was really well-intentioned in issuing the guidance. They're really smart lawyers at the SEC. I'll tell you how smart they are. When I applied for a job at the SEC out of law school, I got rejected. So they've got a key, keen eye for talent. Um, but the uh, but I could tell you the SEC's digital asset framework, it's widely been viewed as having missed the mark. Uh, and some say that the only clarity that emerges from that framework is if you're thinking of launching an ICO, you better not. Yeah, I, I can see how just having 60 factors, you're like, oh, well, we're good by most of them, but there are these two that it's not even clear. And then someone points to it and says, hey, you should have seen these two factors. It's almost worse than nothing if you... That's right, in a way. If they're not weighted, if they're not, this is the, this is what's a good version of that fact. This is, if it's just a list of things to take into account, it's just going to create more confusion. So we do have that 1946 Supreme Court case, the Howey case involving orange groves, which I think has gotten a lot of talk and, and also some confusion. You want to tell people why that old Supreme Court case is so relevant to the industry? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I can go on forever on this stuff. I, uh, I love it. Uh, but you really can't understand the U.S. regulatory approach without talking about the Howey case, which is this 1946 Supreme Court case. And it's amazing how many people in this industry now, non-lawyers, can now either recite the Howey factors or at least know what the Howey case is. So in Howey, what the Supreme Court said was that where, uh, one, a person invests their money two, in a common enterprise, and three, is led to expect the profits solely from the efforts of others, you end up with something called an investment contract, which is a form of security under the U.S. law. So what happened in Howey? So in Howey, you had a bunch of tourists in the 1940s down in Florida, and they bought these little slivers of land in Florida, orange groves. But in addition to buying the land, they also paid the seller of that land to manage the orange grove grow for them, meaning, you know, 
plant the tree, water the tree, fertilize the tree, pick the oranges, and sell the oranges. And what do I get as that tourist who invested in that land when the oranges are sold? I get to share in a piece of the profits. And the Supreme Court said that that transaction was not just the sale of land, but it was the sale of land and a management agreement amounting to a security. So, Because investors could just sit back and expect profit. Exactly. Not, not only sit back, do actually do nothing. Probably not, not even ever visit the property. Gotcha. Right? They, they, don't, they never visit the property. So look, while everyone pays attention to the stuff, loves to now talk about orange groves in Howie, there's a whole bunch of cases that tease out this concept. And to kind of get to your point, David, so we have oil drilling rigs. We have barrels of whiskey. We have pay telephones to the extent anybody remembers what a pay telephone is. We even have beavers. So, And in each one of those cases, I give you my money purportedly to buy the oil rig or the barrel of whiskey that's sitting in Scotland or the pay telephones that's sitting in San Francisco somewhere or beavers that are roaming a fur farm somewhere. And I rely on you to operate the oil rig, to age the whiskey, to empty the change boxes from the pay phones and skin the beavers and sell the fur. And, and then sell me a portion of the profits you make from doing that. That's a security. I never take possession of or even visit the poor beavers. And I, I think if you, if you were to sell me the beavers and I decided to take the beavers home with me and resell them in the open market, even if you continue to own your own beavers and you're off promoting beavers and you were making, you know, and telling everybody how great, you know, buying beaver fur is. Uh, but if I were to take the beavers home with me and do what I wanted with them, sell them or skin them or feed them and keep them as pets, I don't think anyone would seriously contend that the beavers were securities. But in, a, in an odd way, that's kind of how we have ended up with the U.S., uh, in the U.S., uh, with the SEC's approach to digital tokens. So if you kind of wind this back and you look at the application of Howie at the outset of the early ICO cases, it probably made sense because people were tricked into investing their money with an ICO promoter on the promise that a token was going to be built in the future. And the theory underpinning Howie probably made sense. I'm not sure it makes sense uh, in a lot of other cases, especially as the uh, use cases for the digital assets are actually being proven out. So in the U.S., I think we've kind of ended up boiling the frog on this one, if you know what I mean by that that metaphor. Yeah, so boiling the frog is when you put a frog in some water and then you heat the water up and then eventually you're boiling the frog, but there's no point at which the water sort of suddenly becomes boiling. And so there's no triggering event that says the frog needs to do something about this hot water. And I guess that's kind of what's happening with regulation. We've got regulation from 1946. We've got technology or court case from 1946. We've got technology that's gradually been changing. And suddenly we find ourselves in a situation where it just doesn't work for us. So how do we fix that? I think there's a few, there's a few ways in the U.S. where we can get the much needed clarity. Uh, one way is Congress uh, can step in. Uh, and there are several members of Congress who are trying to do just that. We have the Blockchain Caucus in Congress, which is a bipartisan group that promotes the future of blockchain technology. We also have the Congressional FinTech Task Force. And look, we support those efforts. We'll continue to work with those legislators. And then, as I think you commented earlier on, 
We have some state legislators that are legislators that are trying to provide clarity in most recently in California. There's a proposed statute that's working its way through the California legislature and, and we'll continue to uh, track that and support those efforts. But I think what's probably most useful in the U.S., David, and most practical is if the two principal U.S., what I'll call markets regulators, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, if they were to join forces together and they engaged in a process where they solicited feedback from the industry and consumers and anyone else who was interested in commenting, and then they proposed a workable framework that protects the integrity of the markets, protects consumers, but doesn't suffocate the innovation in the process. And SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce, she's been incredibly thoughtful on this topic, and she's been working on a safe harbor that would allow blockchain and crypto innovators to innovate without sacrificing consumer interest or the integrity of the market. And in building that safe harbor, she's soliciting feedback. She was doing roadshows, certainly pre-COVID. She was doing roadshows. Now she's doing virtual roadshows. And she's working really hard to strike the right balance between fostering innovation on the one hand and protecting the markets and consumers on the other. So it's not like a lot of folks aren't thinking about this issue and how to get to a rational result. I've spoken to a lot of people on the outside looking in, and they've seen these different groups form that all try to advise regulators on what to do. Sometimes the groups represent different projects or have people from different projects in them. Someone might represent an ICO or someone might represent Ethereum. I think the industry's trying. Uh, again, it's a, still a relatively young industry, right? The Securities and Exchange Commission has been around since the early 1930s. So, you know, we are, you know, the industry is still uh, an infant in a crib compared to that. Uh, but I do think that there are a number of industry groups that are uh, are trying. There's the Blockchain Association. There's the Digital Chamber of Commerce. There's a bunch of others. So I, I do think that the industry is trying to find its voice on this, and I think it will help. And, and maybe embedded in your question in terms of if everybody is out there trying to advance their own uh, project and trying to get a unique solution for their own project, that doesn't... Look, I understand why people will want to do that, but then you fall right into what the SEC is saying that they need to do which is a facts and circumstances test for every single project. So if every single project needs to be uh, kind of looked at and evaluated on its own merits, uh, we're, we're never really going to get to a principle-based, transparent regulatory framework that, uh, that I think we need in this country. Can we make the argument to regulators that the stakes are high, that it's critical that they get this right? Is this like the internet where if you just banned it, then, you know, you would still have an internet, but the great companies that, you know, the juggernauts of the internet, like the Apples and the Microsofts wouldn't be U.S. companies? Like, can we make the argument to regulators that this is that important? Yeah, it is that important. We can make that argument. And, and I think the industry has been making that, that argument. I mean, look, the United States... We have a history of being a leader in both policy and technology, and, and you know that in the mid-1990s, the U.S. you know recognized that we had this thing called the Internet, and they didn't know uh, how big it was going to get. They didn't know what the futuristic promise of the Internet would bring, but they knew it was really, really important, and they knew that the Internet couldn't be regulated by laws meant for rotary telephones and transistor radios, and those were the only laws that existed at the time. So again, they adopted principle-based, smart, uh, 
flexible regulation that allowed the internet to grow, uh, foster, innovate, and fulfill the promise of the internet as we know it today. Uh, and I think if, if the U.S. had taken a much narrower view in the mid-1990s, uh, I think what would have happened is either we would have stunted the growth, growth of the internet or those innovators would have moved offshore, which I think is what's happening a bit with, uh, with our industry right now. I mean, we've seen just on that point, I, you know, for folks who keep track of this stuff, they'll tell you that blockchain investments in the U.S. have recently declined by as much as 20%. And uh, look, there's a real danger here. And, you know, I, I don't want to sound alarmist, but this is, I think, you know, more rooted in, in fact. There's a real danger here of the U.S. getting the reputation that this technology is not welcome in the U.S., and there's a huge consequence to that. Uh, you're going to disadvantage U.S. companies, and so they can't fairly complete globally. So we're not asking for no regulation. We're asking for a level playing field. Uh, and I think, you know, um, look, if you just look to China, what's happened in China with 5G, I think we lost the 5G race. And there's a real danger here if we lose this race to another country uh, like China, putting aside just the competition issue, right? If, but there's a real, I think, na national economic or national security issue. So China has already created a new domestic oligopoly for digital payments you know, operated through companies like Alipay and WeChat. Uh, they're also working on their own centralized sovereign digital currency, the digital yuan. And the Chinese government is subsidizing the vast amounts of energy needed to fuel the cryptocurrency miners in China. Uh, at least 65% of the cryptocurrency uh, mining for Bitcoin and Ether is concentrated in China. Uh, that's subsidized by the Chinese government, and that translates into billions of dollars of mining rewards going to these Chinese mining pools. And what's really troubling on this point, David, it's uh, that the two cryptocurrencies, the only two cryptocurrencies that the U.S. regulators have seen fit to declare are not subject to the, uh, the very heavy-handed and Byzantine securities laws in the U.S. are the Chinese-controlled Bitcoin and the Chinese-controlled Ether. And David, the other thing, and, you know, I really haven't gotten into it, and we could do probably, you know, a whole other, you know, 20 minutes on it, is the impact on the environment of these mining pools, these Bitcoin and Ether mining pools. Not only are they uh, subsidized, uh, but the carbon footprint of these mining pools is enormous. I've read statistics that 78 terawatts of energy is used to operate these mining poles. I'm not sure how big a terawatt is, but it seems like really, really big. I've heard it's like the equivalent of the energy consumption of, you know, of relatively substantial countries like Finland. And that's just for Bitcoin mining alone. So not only is there uh, sort of the, you know, a national economic issue to it, if these mining poles are being subsidized by energy in China, and we've got billion dollars of mining rewards going to Chinese controlled mining poles, but there's a real, there's an environmental and sustainability aspect to this that I'm not sure if people have really uh, spent that much time or enough time thinking about. So we've got a real, there's a real issue here, right? You, you can lose out on just competition generally, if you can't foster innovation around blockchain and crypto in the U.S., you're just going to move offshore. But then there's sort of a national interest issue 
where if you lose that race to uh, to China, I think there's real implications for that. But look, you know, look, all is not lost. I'm kind of painting a kind of a pretty dire picture, but all's not lost. We do have regulators in the U.S. that are, uh, I think, leaning into this. And I'll give you two examples. And these are not what I call the markets regulators, like the SEC or the CFTC, but they're very important regulators. So I'll give you two examples. So you know this one, uh, David. Uh, if I use the legacy banking system today, and I want to send $1,000, and I'm sitting in the U.S., and I want to send it to you, and you're sitting in the Philippines, my bank uh, can't tell me, they cannot tell me uh, before I hit the send on that transaction, whether you're going to receive uh, $970 or $920 or $930. We only know that after the transaction settles. And the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection, which is the U.S. agency uh, charged with uh, protecting consumers, they recently reinforced that uh, the regulation on this, Reg E, which is the regulation that governs electronic transfers of remittances, requires banks. It's the law. Banks have to tell customers in advance precisely what the cost of that transaction will be. And they said legacy systems won't get banks there. But innovative technology like blockchain and crypto, if adopted, could solve this issue for banks. So that's one example. The other recent example is the Office of the Controller of the Currency, which is the OCC, which is the chief banking regulator in the U.S. under acting controller Brian Brooks, who, by the way, was just the recent chief legal officer for Coinbase before he went back to join the OCC. They just issued something called... Uh, in ANPR, which is an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, which is like a request for comment. And they're soliciting comments. And one of the questions they're asking is, hey, what's the barriers to further adoption to crypto-related activities by U.S. Bank? And they want people to tell them because they know something's amiss here. We've got this great technology. We don't see it being adopted by banks in the U.S. What's wrong? What's the obstacles? Come in and talk to us about that. And I think what the OCC may hear is that this issue of lack of regulatory clarity in the U.S. is really a huge blocker to banks in the U.S. adopting this technology. So what's the what's the what's the good news? Um, what what are the tangible benefits? Where could we get to if we get this right? Look, I, I think if we can get this right, we uh, and, and you know this better than me, David. I mean, you you've been. You're you're an inventor. You're a developer. I'm just you know I'm just a country lawyer, new to the you know kind of new to the space. But look, you know we can get a lot of things right. And if you just look at the cross border remittance problem that the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection talked about, uh, this is we can we can bring transparency. Uh, we can bring efficiency to uh, to cross border payments, which is an issue that would not only help banks and payment providers in terms of how they manage their cost of capital, but it will help, uh, it will help consumers. And also we don't, you know, we don't really know what the promise of this technology may bring, uh, right? Amazon was just selling books at one point, right? And, and look at them now, putting aside what your belief is to whether or not Amazon in its current form is a good thing or a bad thing, but let, you know, led to sort of, um, being allowed to, uh, grow and innovate brings amazing things. I mean, Netflix used to send you, you know, uh, a VHA tape, you know, in, in the mail, and then you had to return it. 
Look at look at what Netflix is doing now. So there's a real promise here to the technology uh, that I think is inevitable, right? I mean, even in the year and a half that I have been in this space, uh, and you've been in it much longer than I have, David, there's a real sense of inevitability to this. It's not a question of if it's going to happen. It is happening. And we see a lot of evidence of that. I mean, in February of this year, the G20 finance ministers and central bank governors, they issued a statement uh, urging countries to implement a cryptocurrency standard. We see uh, the Financial Action Task Force, which is the global money laundering watchdog. They issued guidance setting out best practices to address money laundering concerns uh, for blockchain and crypto. And guess what? The industry is stepping up and saying, thank you for the guidance. Thank you for letting us know what is required. We're going to now satisfy that standard. Um, and then I go back, you know, coming from traditional finance, you look in 2017 when I was sitting at my desk at a, a bank in New York, you know, we had Jamie Dimon calling Bitcoin a fraud. And in June of 2020, we have JP Morgan issuing a research report that says that the longevity of crypto as an asset class was really proven out by crypto's ability to withstand the madness that we all witnessed in March. So the bottom line is the days of Silk Road are behind us. The Wild West days of crypto, I think, are behind us. We've got real responsible actors that are leaning in. And that means, you know, when I say responsible actors, I mean global standard setting bodies, central banks, large financial institutions. So the question is, you know, how big or will this technology get and where will this innovation take us? So it really does feel like the Internet of the mid 1990s. And I think the good news is with a lot of these responsible actors who want to cooperate with regulators and all regulators, including U.S. regulators, I think, you know, we, sh we should be able to get to a smart regulatory framework. I just hope that the U.S. doesn't get left behind and surrender the opportunity to someone else. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned the sort of inevitability. You draw parallels to the Internet, which I do, too, which almost sort of seems like, well, it doesn't matter what we do. It's, it's good. The technology is inevitable. It solves real problems. It's going to happen no matter what. And I think people felt that way about the Internet, too. They felt that this technology was inherently decentralizing. It would reduce the power of the big media companies. And it kind of did. But I mean, and, and maybe I'm a little paranoid about this, but one of the things that I worry about is that the, the technology can still happen, but in ways that are not as democratizing, that are, that are not as sort of liberating. Like you could imagine an internet that, was, that didn't support anonymity, that was very tightly tied to identity, or that didn't have the kind of, the kind of freedoms that the internet that we got, you know, produced. Do you do you worry that regulators might slam the door on innovation or they might build a system that cuts out, let's say, the underbanked or that doesn't really help uh, with remittances? Like, is, 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 is there a dark path we need to avoid or is it just sort of an does inevitable mean that we can sort of relax? No, it doesn't mean we can relax because I think inevitable means that the innovation is going to happen. But um, unless we get smart regulation by uh, responsible economic centers, and I would include the U.S. in that, uh, the inevitability of the innovation may end up in the hand of, hands of China again, uh, as I noted before, or it, it may be uh, you may engage, you may see um, the innovation engage in regulatory arbitrage. There could be a race to the bottom. So it goes back, that goes back to sort of this principle-based, flexible, uh, goal-orientated 
regulation. We're, I think, uh, welcoming to responsible actors and responsible innovation uh, that will allow the innovation to grow uh, responsibly. But I think if you if you create a hostile environment or you create an environment that is just unknown, like you got to wade through 60 unweighted factors and you don't know whether you're on the right side of those factors or the wrong side of those factors, you're just going to avoid it. Uh, and if you avoid it and you avoid, you know, uh, obviously the the large economic the largest economic center in the world the US you would hope that maybe it goes to a responsible jurisdiction like a Japan or a, a Singapore uh, or somewhere else but it may not you may have a race to the bottom or you may have a race to a, a more of a government controlled regulatory scheme which I think what we're going to start to see develop in China thank you so much Stu this was a lot of fun Hey, David, thanks. It's really been a thrill for me. I'm a little bit of a lawyer nerd, so I'd love talking about this stuff. And thanks uh, for allowing me the opportunity to kind of share my thoughts. It's been fantastic. It's a pleasure hosting you on Ripple's newest podcast, Block Stars. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions about this episode or any feedback for new episodes, please reach out to me on Twitter at Joel Katz, J-O-E-L-K-A-T-Z, or to the Ripple team on Twitter at Ripple. See you around the blockchain. <laughs>